reconvening at the table, you know, one of the things I like to talk about is the ability to share space with people that is so necessary. But in the moment that we face right now, this this quarantine moment that we find ourselves in, uh, it has been difficult to meet with friends, colleagues, professional associates, everybody that we care about across an actual table. But I'm really glad to be joined right now across a, a digital table by someone who's actually joined me before. In fact, uh, Guy Snodgrass, author of Holding the Line, uh, who spent a career in uh, military and communications and and was uh, working under Secretary of Defense Mattis before he left the administration, uh, has joined me before. The last time, Guy, you and I were speaking, we were at your office table. Now I'm at my office table. You're at yours. First of all, thank you for spending some time with me again on At the Table. Yeah, my pleasure, Jared. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about where we are right now. We are a few months into the COVID-19 crisis. You have written extensively, and I would again recommend the book to people in Holding the Line. You have written about how the president manages information. Are you surprised by anything that you have seen in the last few months? No, frankly, I'm not. This aligns, you know, especially I think when you're if you think about a person's kind of professional lifespan, uh, when you start out, you're a new professional, you're just entering the job market. There's a lot of significant change. What you the way you enter is not necessarily the way you're going to uh, behave or act or the things you value three to five years later. And over the course of maybe a couple more decades, that, that'll change rapidly, too, as you kind of find who you are and you settle into your own battle rhythm. So for a for President Trump, he has remained incredibly consistent through the 1980s, 90s, uh, into his term as president. And what I witnessed for two years of his presidency as a member of Secretary Mattis's team and also as a member of the administration uh, is, has just continued unabated during the COVID-19 crisis uh, and through other examples of uh, issues that have come up recently as well. One of the things I've been thinking about is that, for example, we're about to enter hurricane season. We're the, this is not going to be the only crisis that the president is facing. We're going to be trying to have a democratic election in a few months. Uh, these are these are things that make things harder. Uh, what are some of the other crises that you think are getting lost in this that are not necessarily top line? Because I'm I'm certainly concerned about the fact that other things are getting lost, mm -hmm. but I'm I'm not always scanning the same things that you would be. Sure. And to your point, because of my own background, I tend to take a, a look at things through the lens of geopolitics, national security. How does it affect our foreign policy, meaning our relationship with mm -hmm. allies and partners? And also, what do adversaries or nations that want to actively compete with the United States, how do they perceive us? And I think that for them, this is a this is a data rich moment in time because they're watching the United States uh, from the top down, kind of hemorrhaging opportunities, uh, letting the chance to get out in front of a crisis pass us by. And so now you've got to, as we would say in the military, you've got to respond to contact. And that's usually the worst place you want to be because it means that now you are just taking things as they come. You have your immediate knee-jerk reaction, and, and that's not good. So if you if you even rewind over the last few months, and it's funny because it seems like it was ancient history at this point because of, because of coronavirus, but yes. you had the uh, killing of General Qasem Soleimani from Iran, right? That was a nation's senior, you know, it'd be like if someone had taken out uh, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, that's kind of the equivalent there. Uh, you know, it would have been a massively 
uh, it would have been a bell ringer for the United States and for the world as well. And so, you know, you've got these different instances, like you mentioned hurricane season coming up. I think we're also, we've lost the bubble on North Korea because they have significantly increased their testing of ballistic missiles over the last month, let alone over the last six months. But that is being overshadowed by COVID-19. And I think that's another aspect. Not only is it the communication within this administration that has confounded so many people, both internal and external to the administration, but it's also the fact that when a crisis happens, everyone fixates on the task at hand and you start losing sight that there's a bigger world. There are multiple issues happening concurrently with any you know, nation, and, and you can't just afford to focus on one thing, to fixate on one thing. And that's where this administration has been particularly poor during uh, President Trump's tenure. That, that's something, Guy, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, is that this administration has proven over and over again their inability to do more than one thing at once. For example, um, the, uh, the the Senate Majority Leader, for example, said that the president couldn't possibly ha- have been held responsible for his actions in January and February because he was busy getting impeached. Uh, you know, I, I, I just I just think about the fact that in this political climate, no politician could ever be expected to uh, be free from the the acrimony of of partisan partisanship. I, I just think that that would be it's completely uh, unreasonable to expect that, and yet the president is being held by members of his own party to a standard, uh, a lower standard, I suppose. Let, but let me ask you specifically, you mentioned some of the, the dynamics, and I obviously you've written about these in the book, and I'd like you to try to update them if you can for this crisis. You talked about some of these briefings with the president where he would get information about big picture items, whether it was world history, hotspots around the globe, uh, specific problems that you were that you were briefing on or that you uh, were present for while other people were briefing on, and and just the way he presented. How do you imagine these COVID-19 briefings are going, or do you have information about that? Because I think about what we've seen from him for the last few months has been to downplay, 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 and to try to create this alternate reality. That hasn't been successful, but it doesn't surprise either of us, either me as somebody with a White House background experience as a reporter or you as someone who spent a career in the military and then most recently uh, serving uh, the, the Secretary of Defense a few years ago. So I, I just I try to imagine, can you talk about specific examples that you've seen where you're like, yep, that's exactly what Trump would have done. Uh, and I, I, I could have called that a mile away. You bet. Well, I would also challenge your presumption that the president in particular, his attempts to spin the narrative have been unsuccessful. I think from my vantage point, and because I have a large circle of military friends who are arrayed around the country, let alone the world, that means I'm hearing from a lot of different geographic points. And and I would tell you that if you're inside the beltway, if you are, you know, talking to a certain circle of friends, you might say, oh my gosh, how could anybody fall for this? I will tell you, there's a lot of people uh, in Trump country that say, he's doing a phenomenal job and that they are willing to take at face value what the president of the United States says to them. So one, I, I don't think that he's been unsuccessful depending on which audience he's he's transmitting to. Now, as far as when you ask about specific examples, sure. Uh, you know, I it was like watching a slow motion train wreck unfolding in front of your eyes because back in the December and early January timeframe, when you're watching and you're hearing reports about the outbreak that China is fighting, it's starting to crop up in places other than in China. 
And perhaps it's because of my background as a military leader, but I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to say that we are a very interconnected global economy. People travel to and from routinely. There's a high, extremely high likelihood that if it wasn't already on our shores, it would be shortly. And so, you know, this has been beat up in the media. We're, we're going over ground that's already been plowed sufficiently, but I still can't, I can't stress enough that that is typical Trump to take, take things at a purely political face value to say, how does this impact me? How does this impact my reelection? How does this impact my ability to stay in power? And then safety, security, health of the nation comes second. Mm-hmm. And I think that we see that play out in a way with this president that I have never in my adult life. Uh, you know, and the first president I really started watching was President Reagan because of my age. So, you know, this is just such a break from at least even a veneer that the nation comes first, the health and welfare of the citizens you've been elected to lead should come first. And this president, through his actions, not just his words, demonstrates that that's not necessarily the case. And so when he takes the podium and calls calls it fake news, accuses the uh, mainstream media of, you know, hype overhyping it because they, you know, he wants they want to they want to get him for this because they couldn't get him for the other things. You know, he said his coronavirus response was perfect, just like his phone call with the Ukrainian president was was perfect. All those things are very quintessential Trump. And then you lump on top of it what I call the turn, right, where he's been proven wrong. And now suddenly it's like a scene from Orwell's 1984 where immediately he'll switch tack and say, look, I've been saying this all along. This is going to be a massive crisis. No one could have ever seen this coming and nobody's doing better than I've ever done. It's the biggest crisis that's ever faced America ever. And you sit there, I think for a lot of a segment of America will say that's the most preposterous thing I've ever seen or heard. And then for another large swath of the country, they just kind of say, yep, he's right. You know, um, it's a it's a such a polarized period of time that I think he can run. Uh, a Mack truck through that gap. And again, I'm thinking about some of the the themes you've written about in Holding the Line, and you talk about strategy, what's necessary to build a long-term strategy. And one of the things where Donald Trump seems most deficient is the requirement of impulse control to create any long-term strategy. You just can't, if you know, and you, you kind of alluded to this when you talked about people around the world watching us for our reaction in this moment and kind of taking data of how the United States, well, if, if the, if the message from on high is whatever hurts the president is the worst and the president is incapable of hiding what hurts the president, what we're seeing around, around this is that it's, we're incapable of making a long-term strategy and that's why we lose this six week period. So I think about this, how do we resurrect or how do we reclaim strategy uh, is there anybody in the government who can, and again, you worked for, uh, among other people, the Secretary of Defense, and I think about how do you how do you regain control? Because the other thing we've seen at the podium with the president recently, and you talked about his ability to kind of, uh, you know, reassert his own reality, is that not only uh, can he do that for himself and for some people in who support him, but also of experts and officials in his orbit, like uh, Dr. Burks, for example, we've seen 
kind of parroting this very Trumpian language of, you know, nobody, uh, nobody takes uh, these, uh, these briefings more seriously. And he's a wizard with the data and all this stuff. I mean, this is, this is stuff that we would not expect to see from somebody at the, at, at a White House podium. And yet that's the kind of Trumpy, Trumpification uh, we have seen. So I'm asking you the, the, the question, which is obviously a big one is how does anybody can, can Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, or anybody reassert in this moment and try to reclaim some of the, 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 the mantle of leadership? Because clearly the president doesn't seem capable of that at this point. Well, I think that's a little bit of a red herring. Uh, and again, that's been beat up pretty good, too, than that Dr. Fauci. I mean, I've seen daily articles coming out about the fact that he has done a, a very nice job of walking that line. He's mm-hmm. He puts the, you know, this is an example of a leader who puts the health and welfare of the country ahead of political and partisan politics. And so if the president gets up to the podium and says something that is patently false, misleading, or could inadvertently lead to an increase in the loss of life. I mean, at this stage, obviously, we've already lost lives. And uh, unfortunately, based on yesterday's briefing at the White House by Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, it's pretty apparent that we're going to lose tens of thousands, if not potentially hundreds of thousands more. And so this all goes back to your question about strategy. And I would tell you simply at the end of the day, you can, you can, Take a look at the lessons learned. It won't be until we can apply them in the future with a different leader that it's going to matter because President Trump has proven to be someone who you have to conform to his position, his values, his desired political stake. Otherwise, you are obviously either going to be ushered out or diminished within the administration and you lose your voice. So Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks have done, I think, a very nice job of trying to walk that line. It's unfortunate as people have said, that you've kind of got that Kim Jong-un, that North Korea dear leader approach. And we've seen where members of the media during these broadcasts, if they even use President Trump's own quotes that are accurately quoted back to him, he will say that they're nasty. He will, you know, push them aside. So what is that, you know, what can you and I, what can your listeners gain from this moment in time? And I think that it's that reinforcement that poor leadership has direct ramifications. And it depends right. on your level within an organization or your level within the nation that will impact how much either opportunity, if you're a good leader, or danger if you're a poor leader exists. And this is a, I think, a phenomenal example, uh, as unfortunate as it is, because it's a national tragedy and an international tragedy, but it's a, it's a phenomenal example of when you take someone who is ill-equipped and is a very poor leader in their own right because they put the, their own well-being above those that they serve, you can see those ramifications. And you can imagine if you went back six weeks, two months ago, when we knew this was going to be an issue that hit our shores, if you said, look, I love Fox News. Fox News is saying this is fake. It's a hoax. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not. This is very real. As the president of the United States, my utmost responsibility is, is to care for you, your families. The economy comes second. Uh, my reelection comes second. None of that matters. What matters is you. So here are the steps we're going to put in place now in order to ensure that tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of Americans don't inadvertently or unnecessarily lose their lives to something that is preventable. And to me, that's what always bothers me the most about this current moment of time is that a lot of what we're being predicted for for loss of life was very preventable. And unfortunately, because of the purposeful misdirection, the misleading 
from the bully pulpit at the White House and from Fox News and other locations uh, will directly tie to the unnecessary loss of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. And that's the part that's just abhorrent to me. Guy, you mentioned the necessity for leadership here. And one thing that uh, I, I know a lot of political operatives are loath to do, but have broken tradition with and done is share some of the the change of command uh, protocol, the the things that were left behind from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Again, these are things that were not broadcast in January of 2017, but we've seen in the last few months, as, as the Trump administration, as the president himself said over and over again, no one could have known. We saw some administration officials from the previous White House say, actually, we wrote a playbook including science-based recommendations, specifically including uh, recommendations for a novel coronavirus uh, in in documents for this administration. As far as we know, they ended up on a shelf and ignored. As someone who's been in those rooms, as someone who's picked up or ignored those documents in the past, let me ask you, are these ever used? Are these ever useful? And why are we hearing about them now? So to your question, are these ever used, meaning playbooks from previous administrations, previous, you know, if you're in the military, previous commanders maybe who have turned over to a new commander, Yes, absolutely. Uh, like I referenced earlier in our conversation, you know, in the military in particular, but in throughout government service, you have lessons learned. And if a prior office holder says, okay, I've had four years, eight years, three years in this position, here are the top five things I've learned. Obviously, Ebola and SARS and other, you know, outbreaks were of concern to the Obama administration. We've captured a document, a playbook, as you called it, that will help you through these uncharted times should it become an issue for you. Just like it's well documented, President Obama sat down and told, you know, newly elected President Trump that he that his number one international crisis was likely to be North Korea. So are they used? Yes. Are they helpful? Absolutely. Because the worst way to to gain knowledge is through experience. It's typically the most painful. We're watching that right now with the Trump administration seemingly relearning all in, in a short amount of time, all the previous errors that his predecessors have made when fighting an epidemic or a pandemic. And it again, this gets back to this thought that it's a completely unforced error because in 2016, the Obama administration had created their pandemic playbook in the 2017 timeframe during the transition, uh, you know, members of the Department of Defense, members of the White House were given this playbook. They were, you know, given the opportunity to to interact with the Obama team. And basically the response to the administration was no thanks, you know, and to your point, it got put on a shelf somewhere. So and that again, that's why leadership matters so much, because everyone in an organization takes their cue from their boss, and especially their boss's boss. You know, everyone wants to be in alignment. So if you're the president of the United States and you've made it clear that everything your predecessor did was incompetent, was bad, hurt the nation, and you're setting about to undo everything that they had achieved, uh, that permeates throughout. The, that permeates through the decision-making, and that also permeates through the culture of your organization. And when you're the president of the United States, that means throughout the federal government, that perspective permeated. I witnessed that myself when I was with Secretary Mattis and it was pulling out from the Trans-Pacific Partnership or pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords or stepping away from NATO. I mean, there's a lot of these, you know, again, this is not, this is par for the course for the Trump administration and for President Trump himself. So it's yet again, it was that unforced error of having a way to get out in front and minimize the economic, minimize the human 
cost of this pandemic, uh, a willful disregard to do so. And then now we're playing catch up, which has meant uh, a significantly uh, inc- a significant increase in the amount of lives that could be lost, a significant uh, economic toll for the country. Guy, I want to end with one uh, last question. It actually references something that you said at the beginning of this conversation, which is you talked about uh, moments like these, they help you find out you know, who you really are. And I think about the path that you've taken the, since the, the moments that led you to write Holding the Line, your separation from military service the last few years, and kind of, I can, and anyone who can, who can hear you, it doesn't, you never sound like you're comfortable uh, talking about uh, criticism because it, it, you can tell, at least I can tell, and having, having sat across from you, you, you clearly have a devotion to the country, you clearly have a, a devotion to to see the success that you that you want uh, for the country, and and the the pain that you feel is palpable. And I think about you know finding out where you are, as you mentioned again. It, it just I wrote it down because it stuck with me. The, this idea that we're finding out in this crisis that it will reveal more about us than we were expecting to learn. And I wonder about these last few months and and maybe as an extension of the last few years for you, if that has revealed anything that, that you have uh, weren't expecting. Because, uh, you know, for me, the last few months have been, uh, I have a newborn son, I have all these things. For, for me, it's, it's I've, I've found myself thinking, my whole world was going to change in January of 2020, no matter what. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think about your trajectory, and again, for people who haven't read it, um, you know, you, 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 there, there's a real sense of turning over uh, in the in the book. Um, where where are you now, and who are you that you didn't know that you were before this crisis? You know, it's such a terrific insightful and, and relatively deep question. And I, and I fear that since I haven't really contemplated it, I'm not going to, I'll, I'll wind up inadvertently giving you something that's more surface, but I'll tell you that, you know, whether it's this pandemic crisis or some of the other issues that we spoke about that have come before, I, I don't think it's really changed my North star as an individual. I was raised, I was, I was very, I benefited greatly from having good parents who cared deeply about the country, who felt that public service was, one of the highest callings and not being a politician, not being in a certain position, but just simply finding ways to always put service before self to help those around you. Uh, because that's the nature of not only community to your point about, you know, at the table, I love your theme, the way you've, you've, you've set this podcast up from the start was it's this feeling of community. How can you help each other? And I've been heartened to see that despite the incredible political rhetoric that is ricocheted around our country, that you still see those, you know, during moments of crisis that the country can pull together, communities can pull together. We, we care deeply about one another. So it's very easy to get caught up into this swirl, this negativity. And to your point, yes, I do feel somewhat uncomfortable with open criticism, not because of a sense of uh, overt loyalty or, or unfounded loyalty, but more along the lines of throughout my entire military career, it was very obvious that there is a significant number, there's a large percentage of people who make it a cottage industry just to criticize. What I think the nation needs more than ever are those smaller subset of individuals who say, yeah, I hear this criticism. I can also see the evidence that backs that up. Now, what are we going to do about it? How do we fix it? How do we move forward? How do we make the positive change that's going to be required so that we can restore 
the sense of honor, that we can restore the sense of service before self that I know when I was growing up, I felt like was more pervasive than it is now. And it's less trans, it was less transactional then. Yes, there were, you know, you're either, you're kind of rowing for the Republican side, you're rowing for the Democratic side. It's like in moments of crisis, we're all Americans. So finding a place where we can get away from some of the, what I would just quite simply say is, has been the garbage of the last few years and getting back to just our core principles uh, is what I'm focused on right now. Well, I hope you're right. I really do. But I also know that solutions might require pants. And that's something that I'm <laughs> I'm very averse to uh, changing in the near future. Uh, Guy Snodgrass, for people who didn't hear that conversation, I'm going to make sure it's linked in this one. Uh, the book is uh, was holding the line. It's still still available from what I understand. Uh, the, the, the supply chains have not shut down that far. Guy, thank you so much for spending a little bit more time with me at the table. And uh, please stay safe. You bet. Thanks, Jared. And I will uh, take this Last 20 seconds to uh, just simply for your awareness and your listeners' awareness uh, that, you know, again, that was the book that I had written about my tenure with Secretary Mattis and what I observed in the Trump administration. And I'm just as excited, if not more so, with the second book that's now available on Amazon uh, called, yeah, called Top Guns, Top Ten, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. And a lot of the themes you and I talked about, the importance of leadership, the importance of foresight, uh, I basically take and chop it into 10 very quick chapters. It's a quick read that uh, helps kind of highlight what I, you know, how I, the basically the leadership lessons I learned from my time as a Top Gun instructor and how I think that they can apply to all Americans. Okay, this is how you know that Guy is both A, earnest, and B, uh, a bad business person, because he did not remind <laughs> me before this conversation that this new book was coming out. So I am genuinely surprised about this. And I, here's how you know that I'm a bad podcast host, because I didn't do a damn Google search and realize that this was on its way out the door. So Guy, first of all, congratulations on a multi-book deal. I didn't realize that was in your in your uh, life. And again, things that you probably didn't realize a couple years ago were in your future. Um, when is that? Uh, when is that coming out? When is the, the the next thing? Sure. So it looks like right now it's set for September fifteenth. Uh, as with everything, things are a little bit in flux. I think they want to hold on to that timeline. But you know, for your for your listeners' reminder as well, uh, it's near and dear to my heart because I actually got to be a fighter pilot. I got to be a Top Gun instructor. But Top Gun Two is also set to come out <laughs> at the end of June. So I think it's great timing to. Uh, say if you're interested in Top Gun because of the the glitz, the glamour, and Tom Cruise. Well, then again, here's a book that will share with you the behind the scenes of what it's actually like to be an instructor, and more importantly, what do you learn from that experience? Well, you and I might have to do a podcast where we sit and watch the movie, and I ask you uncomfortable questions about how they change <laughs> the flags on the back of his jacket. Okay, you bet. we'll we'll do that. Okay, for Chinese audiences, I think that'll be the the fun conversation that we do as a as a because uh, if we're still under quarantine, that's the most social we're all going to be at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Guy Snodgrass, thanks again. Uh, so it's uh, Holding the Line, the one book, and then Top Guns, Top Ten, which is coming out, and and we're, we're both bad at business, and that's why we're having this conversation right now. Guy, thank you so much. You bet, Jared. Thank you.